This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today with writer, Marxist environmentalist, and urban theorist Mike Davis, who's publishing widely on the COVID-19 pandemic in Jacobin, The Nation, In These Times, and elsewhere. Fifteen years ago, Mike published The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and he sees the coronavirus and this pandemic plague as the familiar monster now at our door. We get Mike's views on the huge challenges coronavirus poses for humanity, the impotence of global capitalism in its current neoliberal form to prepare for or confront this biological crisis. Mike writes that this medical Katrina exposes the woeful unpreparedness of our disinvested public health system, as well as the stark class divide of healthcare in the U.S. The urgent demand now is for an international public health infrastructure at minimum. And there's more. We then turn to Robert Brenner for his analysis of the deepening crisis and its political implications. Brenner holds that the economic meltdown was triggered by the coronavirus, COVID-19, but not caused by it. We get his account of the politics, that is, of the way wealth is now attained by political rather than the old-fashioned means, and how an alliance of top corporate managers and the very rich, plus leading politicians from both political parties, have rigged the political economy in favor of the 1%. It's from this standpoint of this transition from capitalism back to feudalism that we need to understand how the crisis is unfolding and the various political responses to it from the establishment and from the left. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to begin with writer, Marxist environmentalist, and urban theorist Mike Davis, whose latest writings on the COVID-19 pandemic in Jacobin, the nation, in these times, are circulating widely. Fifteen years ago, Mike published The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and he sees the coronavirus and this pandemic or plague as the familiar monster now at our door. We're going to get Mike's views on the huge challenges coronavirus poses for humanity, the impotence of global capitalism in the face of biological crisis. And Mike writes that this medical Katrina exposes the woeful unpreparedness of our disinvested public health system, as well as the stark class divide of healthcare in the United States. The urgent demand now is for an international public health infrastructure at minimum. So Mike, um, I was going to just say that the coronavirus cases in New York are doubling daily. And in California, the governor's ordered all residents to shelter in place, warning that 56% of the population could get the virus, which means probably something like 25 million people. And on the other hand, the economy has not just crashed, but come to a virtual halt or a near halt. Everything urgent from masks, tests, medical personnel, hospital beds, ventilators, and pharmaceutical interventions are nowhere uh, matching need. So we're going to get your views on all of that, as well as the start class divide of our healthcare system. So welcome back to the program, Mike Davis. So let's just begin, you know, with the spread of this virus and how you see it at this point. 
Well, of course, the virus pandemic grows exponentially. So when the governor predicts 56%, that's from a simple mathematical model based on what's known about the spread so far, and particularly the flood of information and research that's coming out of China. Uh, China gets a lot of blame for trying to cover up the beginning of the pandemic, but they've been absolutely exemplary. I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about its medical community been exemplary uh, in providing uh, quick updates and research. So this is not some off-the-wall prediction meant to scare us into locking ourselves in, in the background. It's exactly what you would expect in a pandemic. And we see that, you know, as you just mentioned, that China, it may have been the conditions that, that created the virus could probably go into, but we saw an immediate or fairly immediate response and testing there and in South Korea and elsewhere where they were motorcycle, you know, medical personnel stopping people in the streets and doing immediate testing. Whereas here in the United States, we just don't have anything like that. And I'd like to get your views just a little bit about comparing China, say, to Italy and Iran so far, I saw a report from a medical professional in Milan today that, you know, basically said they're so overwhelmed that they've stopped counting the dead. Yes. I mean, in the Chinese case, of course, we've heard that, well, China's been able to contain the first wave of the epidemic because, look, they're a quasi-totalitarian surveillance society. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I feel feel there's not really any obvious connection between putting a million Uyghurs in re-education camps or, for that matter, uh, surveilling every jaywalker in the country and reducing the social credit points. No relationship between these truly authoritarian and scary aspects to the Chinese regime and the way they dealt with the epidemic. They have had extraordinary uh, success in this because, first of all, they were able to contain it within Wuhan or the larger province, 58 million people, Hubei. And that allowed them to move medical personnel who otherwise uh, would have had to stay in place to face the academic as it quickly reached them. This gave time for those personnel then to just pour into Wuhan. Uh, it also happens that China does manufacture things like For instance, most of the N95 protective masks in this country, I believe, are manufactured in China. So they have unusual capabilities to uh, keep the supply chain going. But I've been trying to argue that we need to separate state capacity and public capacity to react in such an energetic and scientific way to the pandemic from authoritarianism per se. We need to imagine how this works in a democratic country, one that also mobilizes social courage and the great strength of communities. China now not only has contained the first wave, and the reason I say the first wave is because it's entirely likely that, for instance, if the Chinese uh, economy goes back to work, people travel more, that coronavirus could come roaring back, though probably not as in lethal a form as in the first wave. But the Chinese know this, and they're prepared to deal with three or four further ways before the uh, pandemic's uh, 
uh, suppressed. But China has such capacity and such interest in creating uh, an image of being a moral force in the world that they're now engaged in the massive export, both of scientific uh, information, of doctors, and above all, of medical supplies to the rest of the world. They have a big contingent now in Italy, which has turned to them because the Italians have discovered they can't rely on their partners in the European Union to uh, supply these things. Each state is, you know, decided to bunker down and prevent exports uh, of their own uh, scarce commodities. This could be perhaps a death nail in the coffin of, uh, of European unity. But the Chinese are wrapping this up across the world. And, of course, total contrast to this country, where we put a stone on the Statue of Liberty that says, go away and don't phone us. Oh, God. Um, I just wanted to go back to that because, um, you know, it's kind of a horrible prospect to think that the alternatives are either a completely dysfunctional global capitalist system that, you know, now also exposes just how weak, empty, and ridiculous its leaders are in the face of of this pandemic. And I say that from the United States, not just the Trump presidency, but the pathetic democratic response as well, that was woefully inadequate and self-limiting, figuring, oh, well, we'll see what we might get our Republican partners in the Senate Senate to maybe accept. So we have that as one model or this form of what we call it a market Stalinist authoritarianism that seems to at least mobilize resources much better. But there's another question here, too, Mike. But could, I, could I interrupt you, Susie? Yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to argue here, it's, it's not necessarily the case that it's the authoritarian institutions and policies of China that have been responsible or become the precondition for such an effective response. It's been the building up of, of Chinese medical capacity. Yeah. It's the traditional discipline of Chinese people. Another model I put out there in some recent columns is the small country of Ireland, which, of course, is a capitalist society with great social inequality. Nonetheless, it's also, by the way, a country with one of the highest rates of unionization still in the world. Uh, There's a large left of sorts in, in, in Ireland. But Ireland's response, utterly different from that of the United States or other Western European countries. So immediately after the first cases appeared, the Minister of Health went on TV and called for medical volunteers, doctors, nurses, people in retirement, people in finished medical school, stuff I think Cuomo was talking about this morning in his press conference. 24,000 people answered that call within the first day. Simultaneously, people created, uh, grassroots people created a national volunteer system for people to go home to home, calling on old people, buying their groceries for them, helping in that way indeed. In Ireland right now, the National Police Force, the Garda, deliver prescriptions to elderly people. So now Ireland might not be a model for a country as large as the United States, but it's certainly a good model for conducting containment within, say, a medium or large sized city. Well, it, I wanted to I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask you about that, because what I was going to get to is that there's never been a more crying need for international cooperation uh, 
And since China was first and then is now has apparently flattened the curve, as they say, it seems that there's a lot to learn from it and use from it. And yet, even on the question of testing, the U.S. wants to develop its own tests. And because we have many states, the states themselves are developing their own tests. And it may even get down to hospitals individually developing tests. And I'm just wondering if you have any insights on why there isn't at this moment, you know, the kind of international cooperation that could be, you know, put into practice. And so, you know, and this, you know, and then I want to get on just a little bit into a little bit of a deeper discussion about why you think Italy is going the way it is. But maybe to that first question about international cooperation. Well, we face a, uh, the most serious crisis possible of international solidarity as so many wealthy countries hoard all their medical supplies and uh, you know resources for use on themselves, which is not even the best course to pursue uh, on a basis of you know maximum benefit for the, the countries involved. I mean, the kind of collapse of coordination and resource sharing and emergency production of supplies in Europe is pretty shocking when you look at it. But the larger malaise is that since during the Cold War, imagine during the Cold War, you might be a farmer living in uh, some part of the Sudan belt in some little obscure village. Well, during the Cold War, each superpower had an interest in knowing, were you going to vote for the communists? Are you going to support the United States? Are you going to embrace five-year plans? Are you going to uh, open a McDonald's, you know, instead? In other words, the Cold War was inclusive of all humanity in the sense that there wasn't an inch of ground or a person on Earth who wasn't uh, contested by the two systems. When the Cold War ended, this disappeared in literally 24 hours. Big parts of the Earth, uh, huge numbers of poor people around the planet, their surplus to the labor requirements of the global economy. They've lost their geopolitical importance. So in a sense, they've been already triaged and put in the hopeless category. They're not valuable to us anymore, so we don't care really very much whether we live or die. Uh, so we've adopted what are essentially exclusionary rhetoric and then backed it up with building walls, excluding migrants, even when that's an idiotic policy, because, for instance, Italy were uh, uh, the oldest population, second oldest population on the planet after Japan, as 23% of the population, over 65, as compared to 3% in West Africa. In Italy, there's actually a huge labor shortage, as there is in all geriatric and near geriatric countries, for one thing. You know, they need large supplies of young workers to take care of, of old people. They need migrants. But instead, they've chosen to, you know, let them drown in the, uh, the Mediterranean, beat them up, put them in camps. We have closed off the exits to a big part of the world. And as they're forced to leave the land or free their native region because of droughts and crop failure, disease, or, you know, fascist local political systems. They have nowhere to go. They're kind of like the homeless in California. It's entirely legal to be homeless. Yeah. But because of all the uh, 
local municipal regulations against camping or sleeping out, outdoors, you can be homeless only if you're standing still walking down the street. Otherwise, uh, you don't have a single inch of ground where you can conduct any of your necessary physical activities. And this is what we've done to a very large minority of, of humanity. So the stark choice before us is if we continue down this path, we basically condemned uh, a quarter of a billion people, half a billion people, almost a certain death over the next generation. Now, this has been framed that this way by the United Nations for years. It's framed as a question of the survival of the poorest by the current Argentine soccer fan who lives in a big house in Rome. But the American left has dropped, dropped the ball, I mean, in the 60s. I mean, there are a lot of problems with our generation. But in the 60s, we were, above all, internationalists, yeah. willing to take, make the sacrifices and the, and the risks for that. Internationalism is in short supply in the progressive movement and in the uh, uh, socialist left, per se. I love Bernie Sanders, but has he ever talked about the world poor? Is he talking now about transferring medical aid? I mean, we should be fighting that as we ramp up production of these lifeline supplies that are missing, as we ramp them up to eventually meet our needs, that we keep producing more and more. So like the Chinese, we can do our bit in dealing with the medical emergencies as uh, coronavirus turns into a, a, a firestorm, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm speaking with Mike Davis, the urban theorist whose book, The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, written all the way back in 2005, perhaps couldn't be more apropos for the coronavirus pandemic that we're all facing right now. And Mike, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, which monster is the one that's really at our door? Is it the coronavirus or is it, you know, you just talked about all of the policy weaknesses uh, worldwide, especially this uh, racism and anti-immigrant sentiment that doesn't see uh, immigrants as sort of the key to the future health of the economy in the world uh, as labor. And in your article that appeared in Jacobin in these times, The Nation, in different places in different ways, um, you talk about this as a medical Katrina. Maybe you could just dwell a little bit on that before we talk about, you know, not just the unpreparedness, but where, what might be instead? Well, our governments have opened the door not only to these novel and emergent diseases, but to all the old plagues uh, from the past. Let me dwell on, focus on two things. First of yep. all, of course, is that since the Reagan administration, when private hospitals were allowed to start getting rid of hospital beds, eliminating 20% of the hospital beds in America because they were following the Harvard Business School logic of just-in-time inventory and wanted to raise capacities to 90%, leaving absolutely no surplus for surges and uh, disease. We've done everything to downsize and reduce our capacities to respond to a pandemic. And that's all occurred in the face of immense course voices from doctors, medical researchers, uh, journalists, even Hollywood films, 
telling us that we're utterly unprepared by disinvesting in public health. For instance, as CDC's budget, Center for Disease Control budget, in real terms has shrunk by 10% recently. By disinvesting in medical preparedness at the very time that everybody is warning us, uh, as did a group of formal uh, White House advisors who briefed President Trump on the imminent threat of avian flu, by disinvesting in our public health defenses, the obvious has happened, the predictable has happened. But there's a second area we need to focus on, and that is that big pharma has abdicated totally the field of research and development of new antivirals and new antibiotics. The people who will be stricken, particularly people in my age group with elderly white male with a suppressed immune system, be shut in hospitals, overcrowded hospital. They already have raging uh, epidemics of antibiotic-resistant bacteria like staph and C. diff and so on, killing 30,000, 40,000 people a year, making hospitals one of the most dangerous places to be in. Think what that's going to look like for critical cases of, of corona. But it's because big pharma does not find it profitable to reduce the medicines upon which human life on, on this planet uh, survives. It's more profitable to deal with male impotence or produce heart, heart medicines or addictive uh, tranquilizers. After SARS, for instance, when, when SARS, the first SARS outbreak in 2003 occurred, crash program developed a vaccine in the minute the pandemic was stopped in its tracks, totally forgot about developing a vaccine. Who was the big farmer going to sell it to? So we're being betrayed in the most, uh, you know, outrageous way by private pharmaceutical monopolies. We, in order to ensure public health at the most elementary level, big pharma has to be broken up and government has to, the public sector has to move in. I'm not excluding a role for giving contracts to hundreds of young startup firms headed by uh, the kind of Andrew Yangs of the world. You know, fine, government should coordinate it and if necessary, do the research and development and the production. This was the case a long time ago. During the Second World War, the army was afraid that something like Spanish would return. So they asked some young medical hotshots, including a doctor named Jonas Saul, to develop an influenza vaccine. They did, and the government produced it. He went on to do, you know, other great things. But those two things combined, disinvestment in public health, depending almost entirely on the private sector for the supply lines of, of materials, and big pharma's abdication of antivirals and antibiotics. Uh, this is what a perfect storm looks like, and it's been unnecessarily and artificially created. I was just going to say, you know, when Trump got into his press conference and he, you know, said that there was this malaria vaccine that might just work and he struggled to pronounce it, immediately afterwards, the producer of that vaccine in pharmaceuticals doubled its price and then was warned maybe that wasn't a good thing to do. And this is before there's any testing or any, not, you know, it's, it really reminds me 
that the other side of this is since you know Re the Reagan administration and the image that the Republican Party you know represented the sort of father figures who knew best how to manage the economy, you know, has been exposed for the hollowness that it is and that we're not just ill-equipped in public infrastructure, but in public leadership as well. And that sort of begs the question because, you know, on the ground, you're seeing people doing heroic things, even DSA is shopping for seniors and other organizations are doing what they can. You know, we're at a, at a crisis point in the sense that now more than ever, we need a kind of mass mobilization, but at a time when we can't go out on the streets and be together. So I think in your article, you start to talk about not just the social divide in the disinvestment of public infrastructure, but it begs the question of how we rebuild it quickly now and what kind of demands come in place. And it's, we've already seen that Bernie Sanders has been literally you know, sidelined in this race for presidency. So maybe you could just comment on all of those things. Well, he may have been sidelined by the Democratic establishment as far as the nomination is concerned. Yeah. But he's fighting fit and out there trying to create a, a progressive response to the virus. And it really is all important that the struggle continue on the floor of the Democratic Convention. Universal health care, single-payer health care must be in the Democratic platform. Sometimes convention platforms are meaningless, uh, just a bunch of uh, unctuous words to conciliate the defeated uh, constituencies. But as the Christian right showed in 2016, Trump capitulated entirely to them and allowed them to write the platform. The Sanders delegates and all of us shouting outside the convention hall, in, uh, or is it in Milwaukee, should be trying to storm the stage during the platform process, because an awful lot of people who voted tactically for Biden, because they believed that he, you know, was more likely to defeat Trump. These people also, I mean, are, are supporters in total converts to healthcare uh, as a human right. So, the, you know, the struggle needs to continue. The, the other thing is that for years I've been arguing in terms of earthquake preparedness, because I've somehow gotten into the small business of writing about disasters in general, <laughs> that California has this idiotic system where basically we're told to hoard toilet paper and wait to be dug out of the rubble by the professionals. Or in other countries like Japan, people are taught how to help themselves and their neighbors. Uh, I think San Francisco has actually finally adopted a system, something like this, where all the health professionals or people with any kind of necessary or useful expertise in a disaster, well, uh, the city knows uh, who they are, and those people are networked to respond. And so what we're doing through these policies is we're doing the absolute opposite of what we should be doing. It's entirely feasible and compatible with social distancing to give large volunteer roles to the public. It's also, in my mind, smacks a little bit of totalitarianism when the pandemic's use is an excuse for totally unnecessary restrictions on individual freedom. I mean, you look at, talk to any doctor and ask them if it's dangerous, take your dog for a walk, 
jog in the park or go out in the hills and go for a hike. Of course it's fine. As long as you practice social distancing, this is one of the best things you can be doing right now. People are, in this country, we are faced with a monster of mental depression. Just like 2008 led to thousands of suicides and family breakups and, and, and so on. This is going to be one of the major damages that the pandemic does to ordinary people in this country who are sitting at home, told by Trump to turn on Fox News for the duration. But in <laughs> fact, they're looking at you know their checkbooks, they're looking at the fact, and I'm sure this affects you and me as, as well. My pension was put into a mutual fund. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, 30, 40% of it just uh, <laughs> evaporated. Uh, we're supposed to stay at home and be cheerful. You must be, you must be kidding. The one activity okay, that keeps people emotionally and mentally helpful in such a, a dreadful period is to have a real social responsibility for others in some way, shape, or form. But now they're telling us you can't do anything. It's much like air travel. I mean, things always unnerve me in air travel is you just sit there like baggage. <laughs> Whatever will happen will happen to you. People want to have some minimal control and they want some way to express their own solidarity and generosity with their neighbors, uh, people they love. And of course, this is arising spontaneously all across the country, but it needs to have its own strategy and its own leadership. And we really need, we no, I won't say need, we really must not concede the freedom of public space. Some, you know, absurd argument about the pandemic that has no, you know, medical justification. We must continue to protest and we must continue to organize to help each other. And uh, if doctors and nurses weren't so overwhelmed uh, by the heroic work they're doing, they would probably be leading that effort right now. I must say, I mean, it's it's progress that Cuomo has embraced the Irish model and called for all the retired medical personnel in New York to step up to play. I'm sure you'll get a tremendous response. Mike, thank you so much. We've run out of time, but I think, you know, there's a lot of takeaways from what you just said, but the key, I think, is that as humans, we struggle for autonomy and dignity and solidarity, and those are the things that we need right now more than ever, and I also take to heart what you said, that we storm the Democratic National Convention and make sure that those are on the platform somehow. If not, oh well they're on notice. But Mike, thanks so much as always for your insights and hope in this, in the face of this monster that's right at our door right now. And just want to urge the listeners to go out and read Mike's articles on COVID-19. You know, he's been writing everywhere. So go to Jacobin, the nation in these times, you could probably give more Mike, but I just want to thank you so much and go pick up his uh, 2005 book, if it's still around, which was The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, coming out next month. And we're going to be talking about it as Mike's book with John Weider on LA in the 60s. And you will not want to wait to buy that up. You'll just buy it. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Right on. Power to the people. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away.
Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Robert Brenner is with us again. He's professor of history at UCLA, author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, Boom in the Bubble, and others. And in recent interviews right here, Robert Brenner has developed his ideas on what he calls the long downturn and the way the finance sector, corporations, and the very wealthy have rigged the economy to their benefit. So I want to welcome Robert Brenner. But before we go into this, I want to just kind of do a recap of what happened last. So today he's back with us to complete his account of the economic meltdown that was triggered by the coronavirus, COVID-19, but not caused by it. We'll also get to his account of the politics, that is, of the way wealth is now attained by political rather than the old-fashioned means, and he'll explain. But this recap, what Robert Brenner has argued so far. First, that the catastrophic crash of the stock market and the devastating disruption of the financial markets was prepared by the profound weakening of the productive economy. And it's because that economy has been so weak that the stock market crash has detonated a devastating crisis, a disruptive recession, which would have been bad even without the pandemic. So it's the exact opposite of the story that Wall Street, the business press, and corporate media have been telling. On the night of the initial stock market collapse, when shares fell as much as in any two-day period in history, Bloomberg described the period since the financial markets were bailed out by Bush and Obama, that is, from the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, until the present, as an extraordinary stretch of growth and declared that the end of the bull market seemed to come out of nowhere. But the end of the bull market on Wall Street was not a surprise. It should have been expected for a long time because the decade since the Great Recession has witnessed the worst economic performance by far of the post-war epoch by every measure. It was only the last installment in a long process of worsening, slowdown, and repeated crisis going back to the mid-70s, what Robert Brenner has called the long downturn. So in every respect, the appearances have obscured the reality barely beneath the surface. So it's been proclaimed ad nauseum as if it's the most obvious thing in the world that we have the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And that's true of the official unemployment rate. But if we take into account that people who are not collecting unemployment are not included in the official employment rate, we have an actual unemployment rate that's still worse than it was on the eve of the Great Recession in 2007. We've also had endless talk about how rapid automation is wiping out jobs, but productivity growth in the private economy, especially manufacturing in this same period, has been by far the worst of the post-war period. And Brenner continued last week that it should not be surprising that productivity, output per worker or hour, has grown so slowly. Equipping workers with more and better capital, machinery, skills is the way to increase their productivity. Yet investment in new plant, equipment, and software has proceeded during the last business cycle at the slowest pace of the post-war era. The outcome is that despite the pundit's refrain, there is no paradox between the stagnation of living standards and working conditions 
and the state of the economy. The stagnating economy, expanding at a snail's pace, has brought stagnating demand for labor. So we've had a long period of falling, now flat, real wages plus lousy jobs. This has forced people to work two or three jobs, insecure ones at that, just to survive. And the last and perhaps most spectacular illusion of this period, as Robert Brenner explained, is that corporations have been making profits hand over fist. At the center of this misimpression is the record run-up of the stock market and the financial market melt up, giving the impression of dynamic profit-making leading to a new gilded age. But in reality, corporate profits have been astoundingly weak. They rose a little bit in the wake of the Great Recession. Over the past six years or so, they've been simply flat. So my shtick is, what kind of capitalism is this without capital accumulation that the money capitalists are hoarding is not being turned into capital? So Robert Brenner, welcome. And you've explained the reality that we're facing once we dispel the fairy tale, the illusions of our day, is the paradox of capitalism without capital accumulation. You argued that once we have understood the mechanisms behind the weak economy, we can understand the bust, and recession, or worse. So can you explain? Sure. As you said, the key question is why the economy is so exceedingly weak. The answer has two aspects, the real economy of production, and I emphasize the real economy of financial services, lending. So those two are normally going together, and they are what works as the productive economy, even though we wouldn't technically call finance productive. It's nonetheless key for capitalism. So what about this real economy of production? What we had over the post-war period, and in particular behind the slowdown, is worsening industrial overcapacity enveloping the world as one after another new manufacturing region has entered the world economy from Japan and Germany, the, uh, the East Asian Knicks, East Asian Tigers, and finally, of course, the big one, China. So following the long epoch of high profitability and the golden age of growth of the post-war boom, we've had the fall and the failure to recover the, of the rate of profit. That's been the case, even though there's a lot of controversy about it. I, I want to insist that everything has shown this to be true. What we have had then is that Overcapacity and reduced returns have discouraged new investment and employment. The fall in returns have, as always, made for a worsening problem of aggregate demand, not the other way around. So we've had declining demand for investment goods, plant machinery, wage goods, consumer goods, if you will, and thanks to the cuts in the welfare state, declines in government service. So we've had declining demand rooted in the falling profitability overcapacity, and that in one after another area, declining demand has led to declining output and slowdown. Slowdown in demand, slowdown in output. The weakness of the real economy is what has brought about the weakness of financial services. Some people will be shocked to hear about the weakness of financial services. That sounds as if it's totally counterintuitive, but given what we know about the obscene wealth of the Wall Street rich, so they have all this money, how come I'm saying the financial sector has been stagnating? In actuality, the weakness of the financial service sector is intuitively obvious. The great period for finance in the normal sense of financial services 
which is above all providing loans to the corporations as well as households, was the post-war boom from the 1940s to the 70s. The great corporations all across the economy were expanding, making big profits, investing in new plant and equipment, hiring workers who were consuming. So they had a huge demand for loans, as did the working population. So we had a huge demand for loans in the real economy. These were supplied by the banks, and the banks made money hand over fist. If you want to know the real great age for actual finance in the standard term of financial services, that was the post-war boom. And we should understand it that way. But for the long period since the late 70s, we've seen corporations slowing down in demand for plant and machinery software and also for employees. This has made for lower demand by corporate borrowers for loans, loanable funds, loans to invest. And the decline in the demand for loans to invest has been paralleled by an increasing supply of money from lenders to advance as loans. So we've had a spectacular fall off, actually, of returns to lending. The financial sector, in the normal sense of financial services, has been in trouble. So what is the result of that decline in demand for loans, increase in supply for loans? Well, it's a precipitous decline in interest rates, which have been falling since their peak at the end of the 70s and the early 80s. And they've really collapsed over the last decade to zero, literally zero, or and below zero. Below zero? What do you mean? So the result yeah. of reduced returns and investment in the real economy is reduced returns and lending for production and profitability. Perhaps the most emblematic economic number to get at what's been happening has been the growing amount of total debt on a global scale that is receiving less than zero interest rate, minus interest rates. So people are being paid to borrow, or corporations are being paid to borrow. Yes, and exactly. And the amount of uh, loans out on a world scale below zero interest rates is now 17 trillion, or was on the verge of the crash, maybe 30% of world debt. And probably much higher now. Yeah, why would anyone lend at less than zero? The only reason is because they expect that things will get worse, that returns would go even further into the negative. And I believe that there could hardly be any more direct statistics indicating the state of things in the economy on the eve of the crash. The economy was grinding to a halt, and this was made clear by the, the amount of money being borrowed at, <laughs> at negative interest rates. Pro- the production of goods and services was going nowhere and generating very little. Wow. So I began by asking you like, about what kind of capitalism is this? And of course, now we're seeing that everybody thinks this maybe just could be the end of it. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit, Bob, about how a capitalism that can't invest and can't grow can be justified. So it seems to me that the first result of what you're saying could hardly be more telling. It's to call into question in real ways this very justification for this system that we're living in worldwide called capitalism. This was always previously justified by its superiority in the production of goods and services and its relentless creative destruction. But clearly, 
This is not the case and has not been the case. So how can we, again, I'm going to say it again, how do we justify capitalism if it isn't even justified in its own terms? And that's leaving aside the giant questions of climate change and economic depression, not to mention dismantling public health and public education. So clearly, this non-growing, non-accumulating capitalism is just the tip of the iceberg. But what you still have to tell us pretty much explicitly is how we get from this economy of capitalist decline to the crash and the crisis itself. So recap of where do we go from here, Robert Brenner? Yes, I mean, that's obviously the issue. I just want to emphasize what you've just said, and that is Normally, historically, capitalist justification, and it's been an unbelievably powerful justification for it, is that it brings about growth. And uh, if it's not bringing about growth, why should we have it? And And so I would say that the first thing that you get, if you look at the whole of the period since the 70s, this last half century, is capitalism outrunning its usefulness. And it's not clear why this isn't a justification for putting socialism on the agenda right now. But anyway, so we still have to ask the question, in practice, since we're far from socialism now and we're interested in the conditions to get there. Maybe uh, not so far. Maybe not so far. Is what is the link between the declining, impoverishing capitalism that we've been living through and the crisis? And in my view, the link has been a shift, a dramatic shift, a transition, if you will, that's been taking place inside the slow, non-accumulating capitalist economy to a political economy, a politically driven upward redistribution in the interest of the 1%. And so that's what I wanted us to get there. On, so we have stagnation on the one hand of the real capitalist economy, and now this emergence within that, a little piece of that, a tiny piece of it, but of course, a gigantically important piece of it for the 1%, where they have literally ripped off that stagnating economy. So what we have had developing since around 1980 to now is an alliance of top corporate managers and the very rich on the one hand, and leading politicians from both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party on the other hand. Think Robert Rubin, Bill Clinton. They have essentially rigged that process of redistribution of already existing wealth by reconfiguring our central economic institutions, including the state, the corporations themselves, and Wall Street, all reconfigured to this process of upward redistribution. Now, I can only touch on this story now, but at its essence, what it is most centrally about is about transforming the institutional framework of the corporations, of finance, and the state from structures that used to be about facilitating production and accumulation, nurturing profits to expand the pie, nurturing profits, if you will, to accumulate in the old-fashioned way, to structures that leave the pie as it was and give an ever greater piece of it to the capitalists and the rich and the top politician by means of politically-based plunder. So, so have- just want to ask you to spell out these structures and how they've worked, essentially moving the economy from stagnation to crisis. Okay, just to 
start with what is most obvious and most emblematic, but not yet at get, getting us directly to the crash and the crisis, is taxation. I mean, that's sort of at the, at the heart of what government and state's been about. If we think of the old, the old order, the post-war period, the boom, taxation was at the core of, of what they called Keynesianism. Tax cuts were the form of deficit spending to leave more money for investment in the hands of business so it could stimulate investment and growth. That was deficit spending as stimulus to the real economy. But today, emblematically of the new situation, we have tax cuts supposedly to stimulate the economy, but actually to uh, hand money to corporations are rich and nothing more, just straight off the uh, ripoff. So the Trump tax cuts were the high point. They were the greatest tax cuts ever. And yet, because as I've uh, been emphasizing, the opportunities for profitable investment in the economy are so minimal, the Trump tax cuts did all their stimulating of the economy over basically two quarters and were over. And what they did was leave giant deficits. And what those deficits have done politically for both the Democrats and the Republicans, note both parties have pointed to those deficits and they said, well, we have these deficits, so we have to cut spending on things like education, things like health, uh, pensions, social security, all those things have been put forward by this new combined financial political elite because they don't really, they're not really interested in, in productive investment. Therefore, they don't need the conditions for productive investment that have normally been provided by the state. Hence, we have the gutting of uh, the infrastructure. And I don't just mean industrial infrastructure, but also public health and even education. Well, we're going to, I think, run out of time. And I want to get to the nitty gritty, Robert Brenner. So I was going to ask you, so what about the financial sector and the finance asset markets? Usually that's where the generating of wealth exists. But I also want to get to and not lose what happened now. So, you know, it, it just to give you the last question with this one, you know, Wiley Coyote just ran past the cliff. And as he's midair, he uh, looked down and then crashed to the ground. What made him look down and what triggered this crash and crisis? Well, I'm clearly the heart of the matter here, what we have to, you know, focus on, everybody knows is the stock market to stimulate the economy. What we've seen in the new era is rather than deficit spending is because uh, the of the financial sector itself and their fear of inflation. What we've seen instead is turn to interest rates, lowering interest rates. So we know lowering interest rates are the key to getting growth from, from the standpoint of the current uh, elite, the current 1%. On the other hand, the fact remains that cutting interest rates has been very uh, little effective in getting growth. But on the third hand, sort of the uh, hand that has nothing to do with production, the stock market is dependent on cutting interest rates and has been the great generator of wealth for the elite, the 1%. Not production, but growing stock market. So the Fed is supposedly about 
using lower interest rates to stimulate the economy. But what we really saw is that even though it doesn't work, the Fed feels it has to continue to keep rates low so as not to jeopardize the stock market, because jeopardizing the stock market will indeed undercut the real economy. So the upshot has been that the Fed has continually reduced interest rates because it had to to get growth. It hasn't had gotten growth, but it has unleashed an incredible stock market run-up. And the stock market run-up is at the heart of the economy today. So from the end of the Great Recession, in the, as these interest rates fell, we had a cataclysmic, I would say, rise in the stock market. It went up by about two and a half to three times. Huge generation of wealth to the rich. Maybe $20 trillion in market capitalization in- increased. This huge money-making for the rich was totally unmoored from the actual profit-making in the real economy. As we saw, profits were flat. So what we end up with is rising spectacular stock market numbers and flat profits, the biggest price-earnings ratio, the highest price-earnings ratio in history, except for two points. One was 1929 on the edge of the crash and the depression. The other was 2000 and the stock market bubble then, which led to the great crash at that point. So two critical moments of high price earnings ratio. Today's price earning ratio has only been bettered by those two moments. So we have uh, 30 seconds for you to tell me what made Wiley Coyote look down as he was crashing. Right. So Again, talking about our Wiley Coyote, that Wiley Coyote actually is has been located in the corporations themselves, and we've had this you know this phenomenal development in which the kind of ripoff that we've watched taking place has occurred by the corporations of themselves, so as to pass money on to their owners, the shareholders. How has this been? What we've seen the plunging interest rates, right? Because the demand for loans for investment and production has fallen so low. So borrowing by non-financial corporations has, in this case, as we know, not been for the purpose of buying plant and equipment, but to buy back stocks. And this has played a huge role in driving up stocks and enriching stockholders. So so first we have profits reinvested, so to speak, not in capital, but in buying stocks themselves and pushing up the value. Uh, What a wonderful way to not waste your time with that process of production. (laughs) But the problem is that the, or not the problem, but the advantage is that the corporations have not, had to be satisfied to use their profits to buy back stocks. They've gone into ever greater borrowing to do that. Indeed, they borrowed not just to buy back stocks, but to pay their stockholders greater dividends. So the corporation itself has gone into debt ever greater to allow itself to plunder itself even more. In the last several years, there's been 
more spending by the corporations to on these uh, stock buybacks and dividends than the corporations actually have. So the corporations have been left with ever greater debt and unprepared if anything should happen to slow the economy and slow the corporate incomes. So the point is they've been borrowing not with any look to what are the real economic prospects, but they've been borrowing to, to rip the corporations off. This has left themselves incredibly vulnerable for the economy. The economy has, at the end of 19, 2019, has been slowing down, and the analysts have finally been waking up and said, whoop, there's a corporate debt crisis about to happen. That never got a chance to happen. Why? Because the coronavirus came in. And crashed the whole thing. Wiley Coyote. I want to I want to thank you so much, Robert Brenner. We totally ran out of time. Of course, we've even heard from our great leader that the bailout package will now say no stock buybacks and airlines. If all those flights canceled, maybe they'll allow people to actually get their money back instead of holding it for, to be used by the end of the year or losing it. We will see. We have lots of demands to make. I guess we're going to have to bring you back to discuss how we prevent all of that. And this time, let us take advantage of this crisis and change the whole system. Robert Brenner, thank you so much for being with us and giving us this analysis. He's a professor of history at UCLA, author of many books. Google him, you'll find him. Robert Brenner, thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Okay. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.